Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 25th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The health service is over budget. The health service will be over budget next year too. And savings need to be found. We need better budgetary control, which we're all aware of. We need more efficiency and savings in the short run while continuing to deliver reform of our health services. This is uh, the top civil servant in the Department of Health. Robert Watt was speaking yesterday at the Oireachtas Health Committee about the consequences of underfunding the HSE for the next year. There's no prospect of continuing to treat ever-creasing numbers of, of, of uh, sick citizens, ill citizens in our acute settings under the existing structures and pathways of working. It's not sustainable. Ultimately, we are aiming uh, for a country where patients are able to live longer, better lives, who are not only treated but supported by our healthcare services in, in achieving this. Sinn Féin's David Cullinan spelled out the level of underfunding relative to that is to what both the Department of Health and the HSE say they need for the year ahead. You sought a minimum of two billion, you got seven hundred million, so there's a shortfall obviously of one point three billion. That's in the base core expenditure. Yeah, exactly. Excluding most offs, exactly. There's a shortfall yeah, yeah, yeah. of one point three yeah, billion. That's fine, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that means then, Mr. Gloucester, that you have to write a service plan for next year which which guarantees a deficit for twenty twenty four. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I, I said on the public record, based on the cost base that I have today, if I'm to do the services which I have said I'm not uh, cutting or going to hurt people, uh, there is a guarantee deficit. Yeah, there's a guarantee. And, is I'm, that- and I'm not aspiring to the highest level. I'll work to the lowest level with efficiencies, but okay. there is a deficit, yes. Okay. And is that unusual that you would be writing a service plan, building in and guaranteeing a deficit? It would. It would be unusual. Okay. Well, I would say highly unusual and unprecedented. The CEO of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, and the Secretary-General of uh, the Department of Health, Robert Watt, both responding to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health at uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee yesterday. David Cullinan is on the line now and joins us. An unprecedented way to budget for the year ahead. Very difficult to argue with that and the figures are quite worrying to say the very least. What are your concerns? after what you heard from the top officials yesterday? Well, I think what we're seeing, Michael, is a conflating of two issues because there is no doubt that we need to achieve efficiencies in healthcare. 
And what's ironic about the commentary over the last number of days is to hear any amount of government representatives talk about saving money, getting better efficiencies, uh, when they were the very parties that created the problem in the first place with a massive over-dependence on outsourcing, more money being spent on agency staff, um, and essentially all of that outsourcing costing us more money um, than it should have costed. There's a 30% premium, as we know, on hiring agency staff. So there is that on the one hand that we do need to save money, and and I've acknowledged that, uh, and efficiencies, of course, should always be made by the HSE, and we need to strive to do better in that space. But separate from that, we had a very deliberate decision by government to underfund the health services. And what we needed to get yesterday was clarity from the head of the Department of Health and the head of the HSE as to precisely the extent of that underinvestment in health for next year. And as it was agreed by both, it is €1.3 billion. Euro. Mm. And Mr Gloucester, who is the, the new uh, CEO of the HSE, he's only in the job about six months. He's been given an impossible task I've been asked to write a national service plan for the HSE next year, which sets out precisely what services will be provided um, in what areas across the health service. But he essentially won't have the money to provide them. And he has to, in an unprecedented and what he described as an unusual way, build into the service plan a guaranteed deficit. So he has two choices. Mm. He can cut services uh, to come in on budget, which he has said he will not do because of the impact it will have on patients already we've seen some cuts with a recruitment embargo on some posts in the front line and 7,000 unfunded posts that were due to get funding now being scrapped but he is reluctant to go further which means he has to build in next year a deficit so the madness of all of this is at some point this will have to be paid for anyway Mm. and it's a really chaotic unprecedented way for the government to come at funding the health service. And of course, the health service will continue to do uh, an awful lot of wonderful work as it does every single day of the year, uh, like in the stroke programme. And you raised the stroke programme as one example of the services, the great services that the health service provides to people in this country. And you asked how much additional money would be given to the stroke programme next year. Uh, What was the answer? The answer is zero. And, and what's maddening about that particular one is that this was a new strategy that was put in place by this government uh, last year on the back of a commitment in the programme for government. And I've spoken to representatives from the Irish Heart Foundation who advocated for that strategy for many years. And they are absolutely incensed that not one cent has been given to fund that strategy. We also know that across all of the clinical programmes, all of the clinical strategies, including in very critical areas like cardiac care generally, cancer, maternity, uh, all of those uh, very important clinical programmes have been starved of any new funding. And because they have been starved of any new funding, and it was confirmed yesterday by the head of the HSE, that is the case, he agreed with my contention that at best uh, all of those areas will stand still. But given that they haven't even been given enough money to stand still, it's possible some of those will regress and we'll see less activity. So it is concerning that on the one hand, uh, the health service hasn't been given enough money even to stand still. What that means is to provide exactly the same level of services as last as last year, next year. And given it hasn't enough money to do that, no additional money was given for new measures or new services of significance. And all of those uh, very important and critical clinical programmes have no new money, which means that they cannot continue to improve and deliver 
the quality uh, care and services that people need. Which means uh, it's going to be a, a very bad year to find yourself sick. Well, if you look at what happened only a number of days ago in University Hospital Limerick, again, a new record was broken of 130 patients on trolleys. Uh, we still have nearly a million people, which is incredible when you consider the size of the population of, of, of this state, but a million, one million people on health waiting lists between acute hospital uh, waiting lists, which is about 600,000. We have a further 250,000 waiting for a diagnostic scan and about 260,000 people on community waiting lists across a whole range of disciplines. And that means that those patients are not going to uh, get any comfort from the fact that the health service not only has no new funding to improve initiatives to reduce those waiting lists, but doesn't even have enough money to stand still. Mm. Um, Obviously, I'm very concerned about what's happening in the hospitals, but equally it's what's happening outside the hospitals. And if we are going to and improve the situation in emergency departments, we of course have to put more capacity into those hospitals and more beds and surgical theatre and diagnostic capacity. All of that is part of it. And we're promised 1,500 beds, aren't we? We were promised 1,500 beds. Uh, That seems to have fallen off the face of of the earth. Uh, It was announced a number of times by the Minister. Certainly up Mm. to now, there is no new funding. I anticipate that's one of the areas where the government will come in with new money in due course. Um, I certainly will be applying pressure on the Minister to do that. I've asked him directly in the Dáil Chamber a number of times since the budget to outline the status of those beds and there has been no response. But I'm hopeful that that's one area where pressure being applied can force them to provide the additional funding and put in place a plan for those beds. But my point about the emergency departments is that, yes, you have to put more capacity in hospitals, but equally if people don't have alternative care options, either being careful in the home And as we know, people with chronic pain can and should be cared for, first of all, in the community. And if you don't have step-down and recovery options and beds in the community, if you don't have out-of-hours GP care, if you're not making best use of pharmacies, all of that adds pressure onto emergency departments because if people don't have those alternative care options, they end up, unfortunately, being forced to go to an emergency department. And they're actually not getting the care in the right place at the right time where they should. Mm. And yet in the budget just gone, not one cent of additional funding for primary or community care services. So that's the maddening, the madness of the situation that we're in. A a lot of reasons to be worried. And I think you've just touched on the many reasons for concern going into the year ahead. And you were told in no uncertain terms by the chief of the HSE and the top civil servant in the Department of Health that the health service is underfunded for next year. That discussion went on. That was yesterday morning in the Oireachtas Health Committee, but you had a motion then last evening uh, in front of uh, the Dáil about funding the health service. Uh, And the minister uh, said quite a a lot about what's happening in the health service, but we can hear just a a little bit uh, from Stephen Donnelly's speech last night and this is what he had to say about funding the health service next year. 1.1 billion euro of the 2 billion euro in the health budget is allocated to supporting existing service levels. The remaining 900 million euro includes funding for COVID, for waiting list initiatives, for urgent and emergency care initiatives, for supports for Ukrainians, for staffing for new hospital beds, new intensive care beds, new community beds and the surgical hubs. Investment in our workforce is, includes advanced practice and new training posts. Mental health 
and social inclusion measures are included, as is cyber, digital and infrastructure capability building. That all sounds very, very positive and completely at odds, actually, to everything you've been saying this morning, David Cullinan. Well, listen, I think that the Minister obviously has to put uh, the best gloss on what has been a disastrous budget. Uh, the people who will be delivering uh, the healthcare services next year are the head of the HSE, uh, obviously, and he has to write a service plan which essentially now is a work of fiction because it simply won't add up. And the head of the Department of Health, and they've made it very clear what the shortfall and the deficit is. I don't think that the head of the HSE could have been any clearer in the questions that were put to him and the answers that he gave. He was very clear what the deficit for this year was, what the deficit for next year was, the level of underfunding. He made it very clear that the health service is not adequately funded and made it very clear, as did the head of the department, that there is no new money for new measures. One of the things I pointed out to Minister Donnelly yesterday was that there was uh, a gross overstatement uh, in his opening statement as to the extent of the funding. He was claiming that there was €2 billion Euro of new funding being made available. About a billion of that isn't new funding, it's one-off funding, but it was all in last mm. year's budget as well. And uh, claiming that it was additional money obviously doesn't square with what the head of the department... I heard Robert Watt agree with you at the beginning of the programme that it is actually 700 so there million. Is, there's, always, mm-hmm. there's always an element of spin. And, okay. and obviously when a minister is under pressure, they want to put the best gloss on what has been a disaster. But equally, uh, it was interesting that the minister was agreeing with some of what I said at the start of the programme yesterday as well, that there is some within government and some outside of government uh, creating this narrative that this overspend uh, last year and what will be uh, an underfunding of the health service next year is all down to wasteful spending. And um, I have no difficulty in conceding that there needs to be efficiencies in the health service. I think it would be wrong for any a uh, potential Minister for Health, and I would hope that if we get the opportunity, I, I might get that opportunity if Sinn Féin is in government. But okay. of course you want to achieve efficiencies, you want to save money. But I put it directly to the head of the HSE yesterday. Even if we achieve all of the efficiencies that we can achieve, would that come anywhere near uh, meeting mm. the underfunding of the health service for next year? And his answer was an emphatic no. Okay. And in fact, the Minister was very critical of comments that were made, I think maybe potentially from some in the media and elsewhere, in relation to the commentary around the budget. And it was one of the areas where we were in agreement. But where we are not in agreement is that the government has very deliberately and consciously underfunded the health service. And from my perspective, that will have dire consequences for patients. Can I just ask you one last question, though, about efficiencies and if spending is wasteful? Because you've been told by the head of the HSC and by the head of the Department of Health that the health service does not have enough money to provide appropriate levels of services next year. Uh, How does that tally in your mind with uh, the salary? of the head of the Department of Health, which is nearly €300,000? Well, I don't set the salary for the head of the department. Obviously, there was a deal done uh, by this government, and we have uh, stated our position on that when the current uh, head of the Department of Health was put into his position. There was a deal done to Mm. increase his salary. We did not agree with it. Um, We don't have the power to reduce the salary of any senior civil servant, uh, the way to deal with these issues are through pay agreements and we've always and consistently said 
that Sinn Féin's priority in any pay negotiations are for the, those on the lower and the middle incomes uh, in the public service to ensure that the vast bulk of whatever additional money is made available for pay agreements goes in those areas. But I think it would be uh, wrong of me to condense all of this down to the salary of one individual. This is a shortfall of $1.3 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, We have already measures put in place that will bite hard next year, including a recruitment embargo in, on some frontline positions, which sends out entirely the wrong message. As I said, 7,000 posts which have been scrapped, mm. 1,500 beds which have not been funded, clinical programmes which have been starved of new funding, at a time when we have record numbers of patients on trolleys and yeah. people... And no doubt over the course of the year we'll be hearing the stories uh, that uh, result from uh, that underfunding. David, I'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That's David Cullinan, who is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658. Email michael at Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Roderick O'Gorman brought a proposal to Cabinet yesterday about new Ukrainian refugees coming to this country and under his proposal the government would provide them with accommodation but just for three months. There was a bitter row by all accounts. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with the Mead Chronicle joins us now. A very good morning to you Gavin and thank Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Is it true to say that the Cabinet was divided on this proposal? Uh, it is, um, but uh, with, with, I think this po- it's probably important to stress that this is two different conversations. There's one, what, what is Roger Gorman actually bringing to the table, and two, what actually happened yesterday. And, and that might seem like it's splitting hairs, but part of the reason why there was such a row at Cabinet yesterday is because, technically speaking, Roger Gorman was not bringing a proposal. He wanted to instigate a discussion, but he wasn't actually looking for sign-off, or at least it seems he wasn't looking for sign-off at that moment. And, and that is part of what, what's got people so agreed. Uh, but it, it might be more helpful maybe, first of all, just to discuss mm. exactly what Roger Gorman is proposing. Um, so effectively, we've had uh, an ongoing number of people uh, coming to Ireland from Ukraine um, over the course of the summer. It's, it's averaged at around six or seven hundred people per week, so it's coming up at around three thousand per month. We all know that the state is, is very stretched when it comes to trying to find accommodation for that volume of people, particularly when they might be staying here indefinitely. And one thing that the state has noticed now is that around a third of people who are coming from Ukraine ultimately seeking accommodation and protection in Ireland have actually been in some other EU member state first. But Ireland isn't the first place that they've ended up being. They've actually been living or residing in some other EU member state for some time first and then have come here. Now, there might be multiple reasons why they'll do that. It might be because they might have um, some immediate or extended family members who have already come here and that they want to kind of reunify as a family and they've chosen to do that in Ireland. Uh, it might be because of the employment situation. It might well be, of course, because of the, the, the generosity of the Irish state response where the accommodation is indefinitely free of charge, but you still have the right to work or to claim social welfare benefits or anything else of the like. Um, it could be because Ireland is a predominantly English-speaking country and among the EU member states, we are obviously the most uh, Anglophone of them all. Um, but either way, uh, the state now has a bit of an issue because they're a little worried about um, effectively what you might think of as welfare tourism, where because the Irish proposition is so much more generous than other states, uh, the people are now leaving other countries where they've already got lives set up and then they're coming here. Uh, so to that effect, what Roger Gorman wants to bring to the table and, and what was formally proposed yesterday, but what he is thinking around doing is that when you would come to Ireland from Ukraine, that you would only be guaranteed to free state accommodation 
for the first three months. The, the thinking being that after those three months, that then basically it would be the onus would be on the person themselves to try and arrange their own accommodation to try and find uh, work and to basically be able to pay their own way after that. Now, the problem that the Fianna Fáil side of the house has with this is that for as long as Ukraine is covered by this um, protected persons uh, directive at EU level, in other words, that Ukrainians would basically have the same rights as other EU citizens. They wouldn't be coming here like um, direct provision applicants. They wouldn't be coming here with a limited right to work or live for a certain time. Um, if you were to kick them out of their accommodation after three months, unless they go home or unless they're able to fend for themselves, they then might find themselves living on the streets. And if they're living on the streets with the right to reside in Ireland, uh, then they don't become the problem of the Department of Integration run by Roger Bergman. They become the problem of the Department of Housing, which suddenly has to find emergency accommodation for them. And some of the concern appears to be, this is what was given voice to yesterday at Cabinet level, um, that Fianna Fáil would then find itself on the hook for potentially housing hundreds, if not thousands, more Ukrainian refugees in addition to the 12,000 that are already in emergency accommodation. And it's it seen that because Roger Gorman raised this yesterday without prior agreement, that basically he, he is perceived as, whether correctly or not, uh, bouncing Fianna Fáil into a problem and trying to get them off his own back. Am I right in thinking that Micheál Martin was particularly uh, annoyed for two reasons? One, that there wasn't prior uh, agreement because there's a subcommittee which both Minister O'Gorman and uh, the Taunish uh, sit on uh, and they couldn't agree on this and that would be the protocol that an agreement would be made at the subcommittee before bringing it to a full cabinet meeting. So what was the point if they couldn't agree it at the subcommittee? And then this issue of putting one problem that uh, the Minister for Integration has over onto the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, who's a Fianna Fáil minister. Yeah, well, that, that secondary one is certainly an interesting one, because up until now, it had always at least been the public position of uh, the coalition that although the, the challenges posed by the volume of Ukrainians coming in was very significant, that there had been a kind of a hands across the board, uh, hands across the divide approach, where it wasn't necessarily seen as a party political thing, but it was an all-of-government crisis, and it was getting an all-of-government response. And they said up until now that that approach was actually going quite well. So the idea that it might be on Fianna Fáil's mind or on the mind of the party leader, that this was just a means of transferring responsibility from one to another, is certainly interesting. Um, the first point you make, I, I think, is, is a very salient one, because... Not alone was there not any agreement at the Cabinet subcommittee where both of these ministers already sit. Um, this has been discussed um, at the last two Monday nights at a meeting of the party leaders, of the coalition leaders, so to speak. So every Monday night before Cabinet occurs on Tuesday, the three party leaders, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar and Eamon Ryan, and all of their closest advisers, all sit around in a circle in a kind of a Cabinet subcommittee, if you like, as well. And they basically act as a clearinghouse. So if there's anything which hasn't been fully agreed on, or if there's something that one party has some reservations about, rather than having a full fight at the cabinet table, they always ensure that it is signed off by the three cabinet ministers on the night before, thereby removing any items that don't have any prospect of of, uh, getting passed and that might delay the agenda otherwise. This has been discussed by the party leaders at the last two Monday night meetings, and there hasn't been full agreement at, at their level to bring this to a full cabinet. So part of Micheál Martin's anger, as I understand it, is that having twice said he wasn't happy to sign off on the proposals as they currently were, that Roger Gorman then instigated the conversation at Cabinet yesterday as well. Now, mm. he didn't bring a formal memo. It wasn't something where he wanted ministers mm. to sign off and he wasn't trying to bounce Fianna Fáil into it. Rather, it was brought up as a, any other business at the very end of the meeting. Uh, but nonetheless, the very fact that it was brought up when Micheál Martin has twice said 
that he has some concerns about it and wasn't prepared to sign off as it currently stands. Uh, that to me suggests that he was a little bit peeved that Roger McGorman uh, almost looked like, from that perspective, he was trying to pick a fight uh, rather than al- allowing it to be signed off through the internal mechanisms before going to the full cabinet with this idea. There's two very strong messages from this, I think, Gavin. I'm not sure if you agree, but uh, I think it tells us uh, that we can't cope with the number of Ukrainian refugees coming into the country in terms of providing them with accommodation and uh, that the Department of Housing is finding things bad enough or hard enough without taking on that task. Yeah, now I'm not sure to, to what degree the Department of Housing would ultimately have to take on tasks because I think you know. Bear in mind, yes, for, for as long as this uh, this uh, displaced persons directive applies at European level, um, Ukrainians would still have the right to reside here. They would effectively be treated as de facto EU citizens, and that does create a bit of a problem for the Department of Housing. Um, but how, how attractive Ireland might be if Ireland is basically only offering three, free housing for three months? There's a real question as to why people might find the motivation then to stay in Ireland versus going to another European member state. For, like, for example, when a Ukrainian arrives in Germany, um, the allowance that they get, that let's presume that they're, they're a mother that's travelling with some children, um, the, allowance that, the allowance they get is 50% higher in Germany than it is here. They get close to €2,000 per month there versus 13 or 1400 in Ireland. And they're guaranteed free state accommodation for 12 months at the very least, and then mm. allowances thereafter. So the, the propositions in other countries are more generous. The one thing that might keep them in Ireland is A, family ties, or B, the language, because you know the English language would be more widely spoken among Ukrainians than German would be. Uh, but on the other point, I, I think you're probably right. Now, the Department of Integration obviously has uh, advanced sight or advanced notice of any more accommodation that they might be able to get. But it certainly feels like they're beginning to get to the bottom of the list, that they're at a point now where they have mm. done as many appeals as they can. They've tried to repurpose as many hotels or uh, hostels or, or any other um, disused accommodation settings. They've, they've tried to repurpose as many of those mm. as they possibly can. They've put out as many appeals for people to donate spare rooms or second or spare holiday homes and the likes as they can. They know what sort of line of sight they're getting on that. And I imagine at this point, they sort of feel like they're beginning to run out of road where they, they've approached as many hotels as they yeah. can. They've approached as many mm. households as they can. They've they simply have no more space yeah. to go. Mm. Yes, it's people mm. intense yeah. to trap yeah. indeed, yeah. right. Yeah. And although those who are still there are not being told that they're going to have to leave, certainly it sort of feels like they have to balance the EU responsibility of finding some housing for people with the practicalities of simply running out of beds to put them in. All right, Gavin, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Now, to a related issue in Julianstown, Paul Fennell has been in touch emailing us yesterday about a direct provision centre uh, which is to open in the community. He says without any communication or engagement with locals uh, and if there was any communication or engagement, he says he certainly knew nothing about it. Uh, this is going to be located at the Cooper Hill House in Julianstown, which was recently sold for €950,000. That's according to Paul, at least. He says it's currently being renovated to an amazing standard and will house 36 male refugees. And he can't understand why the government thinks that it's okay to keep locals in the dark uh, about something like this uh, when it's happening. He says he's not opposed 
to it in principle. He says his concerns are with the government not consulting or discussing where and what is happening around this topic. They promised many times that they would consult and talk to communities before they placed a direct provision centre in their area. Again, they railroad through people's feelings and fears. So my concern about this in its simplest form, why the secret about this? Why keep it hushed up? Michael, it's like a taboo subject that people are terrified to talk about for fear of being labelled racist and that in itself is wrong. I'm just a concerned local resident that is wondering why the Irish government insists on being so secret about this and decide to reach out to see if anyone else feels like this. Well, thank you, Paul, for that. Uh, And you're welcome to comment if you agree with Paul or if you have similar concerns. And you can email us as Paul did. Our email address is michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's talk uh, about climate change. It's important, isn't it? Well, isn't it? Uh, Is it? Is it something that you think about? Is it something uh, that concerns you? Is it something that worries you? Do you stop to think about how climate change is impacting on other people or people in other countries at the moment? Like the Horn of Africa, where it hasn't rained for years. Or do you worry about how climate change is going to impact on future generations and the world that we leave behind us? Or are you more concerned about what climate change is doing in terms of how you live your life today? Well, there's a very interesting couple of reports that have been published by the Environmental Protection Agency, which gives an insight into how people perceive climate change and its impact on them at the moment. Let's speak to Dr. Connor Quinlan, who's senior manager in uh, the climate science team of the EPA's Office of Evidence and Assessment. So good morning to you, Connor, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you have discovered that people are underestimating the immediate risk uh, of climate change. Uh, if that's true, I take it there's been a, a rude awakening in Cork over the last week or so. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yes, that's that's true to say. Look, this is the um, this, this, this the output of a, a large scale piece of work that the EPA has um, had underway for a couple of years called the Climate Change in the Irish Mind Study. It's a, it's a large national baseline study of beliefs and, and attitudes to climate change in Ireland in partnership with the Yale uh, University in, in the US. And what we have found, as you say, is that. Irish people feel that future generations or p- people in other countries are far more likely to be impacted significantly by climate change than they themselves are. Now, what we are seeing in our in our observational records is that you know we are seeing the impact of climate change here, and as we have seen in recent days, people are very much being impacted significantly by it here. So we feel there is a, a significant underestimation uh, in, in terms of people's sense of, of how this is going to impact them in their their life here and now. And secondly, to that, what we've also found is that you know people here are very very supportive of climate change policies. And um, what we do see is a bit of softening of support around uh, some of the more difficult policies such as you know electrification of transport or electrification of home heating but that that's that, 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 that the concerns that the population have are more rooted in practical concerns rather than climate skepticism mm. there's, there's an overwhelming acceptance of the science here and, and the facts in relation to climate change but mm. what we do find is that people see 
practical barriers maybe in, in relation to some of this transition. And what it points to is that we, we very much have to engage with people and, and address those concerns in order to make the, the transitions that we need to. And where is the lesson uh, in addressing those concerns? Is it convincing people or is it making things like retrofitting homes or buying EVs affordable? There's a number of sides to it. I think, um, as you say, you know, the proof is in the pudding for some people. They have to see it to believe it. And um, in the agricultural sector, there's been a, a history of providing what they call demonstration farms, where they, you know, you see the facts on the ground, you see how something gives the result, I suppose, or, or produces the result in reality, and it leads to mass adoption. And that's something we we can definitely consider. I mean, there, there, and and you know that, that there's evidence that that would work very successfully. In relation to the other barriers such as cost or practical difficulty, logistics, there is research going on uh, currently um, in the behavioural space to actually try and identify what those precise reasons are and, and where they can be addressed because we do have to design these policies for where people are, I suppose, so that we can get mass adoption and, and you're right in saying that. Mm. Uh, and 18 to 24-year-olds uh, don't need much convincing. Uh, they've already bought into the fact that uh, climate change is threatening our existence and they want action. But is that because they don't have to pay to retrofit uh, their homes or uh, to buy electric vehicles? In terms of the the age profile of concern, there's some very interesting findings in in, in this report. Um, Older people are far more likely to think that their families will be impacted than they themselves will, whereas younger people are obviously far more concerned. I think they can see that, um, you know, this is having an impact now and it's likely to have a more significant impact into the future. So um, I think the, and what we're seeing is that young people where they have agency to take action, such as in their in their um, purchasing patterns, that they are doing so. So mm. they are, that they are, their behaviours match their intent. You spoke to 4,000 people uh, aged 18 and older. Uh, did you find where there was uh, some cynical people uh, that they were older people who would tell you, oh sure, I saw flooding years ago. Um, we had hot summers, 1976, 1966, uh, where it didn't rain for three months and that sort of thing. This is just freak weather and you'll always get it. Oddly enough, we've found less, I suppose, uh, cynical or, or climate sceptical people than you would imagine. Um, what we did find when we looked at a breakdown of the overall population is that 85% of Irish people, and this was a very large sample size, as you mentioned, 85% of people are either alarmed or concerned about climate change. Um, well over 90% of people believe it's real and we need to do something about it. So in terms of comparison to our international peers, the number of people here who are sceptical uh, skeptical about climate change or questioning of the science are really tiny. Um, and the other interesting finding that we found is that there's, when you look at an urban-rural divide or when you look for an urban-rural divide, it's, it's absent, essentially. And, you know, people, whether they live in cities or countries, they can, you know, they, they, they can see that this is a real issue that we have to tackle. So that was very positive in terms of bringing people with the, the message. OK, well, that is very positive. We leave it on that positive note for the moment. Connor. thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Dr. Connor Quinlan, Senior Manager in the Climate Science Team of the EPA's Office of Evidence and Assessment. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. LMFM. So good, we say it twice. And now the Central Statistics Office 
has uh, published its latest report on arrivals from Ukraine to Ireland. It's the 11th in the series and we're joined now by Dr Laura Carter who's a statistician from uh, the CSO and a very good morning to you Laura. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Very close to 100,000 Ukrainians have arrived into this country so far. This is up to the 8th of October isn't it? It is. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me on your show this morning. Yes, so we produced our most recent report on arrivals from Ukraine and Ireland yesterday. And this report shows that there were approximately 96,000 arrivals from Ukraine and Ireland by the 8th of October this year, of which 800 arrived in the previous seven days. So to put this into perspective, this is equivalent to the population of County Westmead. So it is um, sizable, no doubt. OK, and over 100 people a, a day arriving. How does that compare over uh, the last couple of years at this stage? Um, well, to be honest, we have seen large figures coming in over the, the past number of series that we have produced For example, in series 10, we saw in the previous seven days 600 arrivals, whereas in our most recent series, it has jumped to over 800 arrivals in the previous seven days. So there does appear to be Mm. an increase. Uh, And predominantly, we're talking about women and children. Yes, women and children. So within our our population of arrivals, we see that women account for 46% of those arrivals, whereas children account for 32% of those arrivals. So they appear to be making up the largest proportion of arrivals to date. Okay, Uh, and integrating, uh, I'm sure, uh, is difficult coming from somewhere uh, as foreign to us, uh, at least as Ukraine would be if we were going there. Language is an obvious problem. And a lot of the people who have come here from Ukraine have gone into further education and indeed uh, have signed up to take English language courses. Yes, so we've seen that just over 12,000 of the arrivals have enrolled in further education and training courses as of the 1st of October this year, of which close to 9,500 have enrolled in further education English language courses specifically. We've also seen that close to 37,000 of arrivals have attended an employment support event arranged by Intro Public Employment Services. And of those, 61% actually have noted that English language proficiency has been a challenge to securing employment, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay, despite their best efforts. And there has been uh, a lot of Ukrainians who've found work. Uh, It's clear from your data that a a lot of Ukrainians are, are keen to work. Yes, we found that there's over 16,500 in paid employment. So we are seeing, you know, that the Ukrainians are finding employment here. Um, The largest number of those appear to be working in wholesale transport and the accommodation sector. Hmm. Okay, Uh, but uh, as you say, uh, language is a a problem. Uh, And this is despite the talents of the many people who are coming here. Uh, uh, The vast majority of them are professionals, aren't they? They are, yes. So over 17,500 who had recorded previous occupations, um, 31%, so the largest group of those are professionals. So that equates to over 5,300 being professionals. So um, we are seeing that 62% of those had achieved an NFQ level equivalent to level seven or higher. So this is equivalent to an ordinary bachelor's degree here in Ireland. So yes, most certainly educated um, Mm. cohort for sure. 
And where are they, uh, I suppose, <laughs> is uh, a, an interesting part of your research. I think everybody at this stage would know somebody who's come here from Ukraine. Uh, but you've discovered that there's more Ukrainians in certain parts of the country than there are in other parts of the country. Yes. So we produce a map within our series on the arrivals from Ukraine and Ireland broken down by local electoral area. And what we're seeing is that Kinmare and County Kerry had the largest number of arrivals from Ukraine at 2,590, whereas Newport and County Mayo had the, the lowest number of arrivals from Ukraine. Okay, it's very interesting. They are our new neighbours and they continue to come in very large numbers uh, and I'm sure there'll be a a 12th uh, edition in uh, the series and subsequent uh, editions for that matter. Laura, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Dr. Dr. Laura Carter, statistician from uh, the Central Statistics Office. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always... one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Love to hear from your telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, you've been hearing in the bulletins today the concerns of uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. That's Antonio Guterres. Uh, and he's been critical not just of Hamas for the incursion into Israel uh, and the killing of 1,400 people on the 7th of October, but now Israel's response and how it's killed over 5,000 Palestinians. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas 
And those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Excellencies, even war has rules. We must demand that all parties uphold and respect their obligations under international humanitarian law. Take constant care in the conduct of military operations to spare civilians and respect and protect hospitals and respect the inviolability of UN facilities which today are sheltering more than 600,000 Palestinians. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. I mourn and honor dozens of UN colleagues working for UNRWA. Sadly, at least 35 and counting, killed in the bombardment of Gaza over the last two weeks. I owe to their families my condemnation of these and many other similar killings. It's been a, a terrible two weeks of war, and who could argue with that? Well, the Israelis have been arguing with that, and they want Antonio Guterres to resign as uh, the Secretary-General of the United Nations. The protection of civilians is paramount in any armed conflict. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protection civilians, protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the south itself. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. Excellencies, thankfully some humanitarian relief is finally getting into Gaza, but it is a drop of aid in an ocean of need. In addition, our UN full supplies in Gaza will run out in a matter of days, and that would be another disaster. Without fuel, aid cannot be delivered, hospitals will not have power, and drinking water cannot be purified or even pumped. The people of Gaza need continuous aid delivery at a level that corresponds to the enormous needs, and that aid must be delivered without restrictions. And as you've been hearing, the United Nations is calling for an immediate ceasefire. I appeal to all to pull back from the brink before the violence claims even more lives and spreads even further. Anton- Thank you very much. Antonio Guterres, uh, Secretary General of uh, the United Nations. Now, as you heard this morning, the doll was uh, debating funding for the health service last evening. Let's hear a uh, contribution from a local TD. The, the underfunding of our health service and budget 2024 will have, will have an impact on our frontline services, including in my own county of Mead with Navan Hospital. It's undeniable that the government's decision to underfund the health service is reckless with the existing challenges faced by our healthcare system. The embargo imposed on essential frontline posts will result in a shortage of healthcare professionals, leaving hospitals like Navin struggling to deliver the quality of care that our patients need and deserve. I talk about uh, GP in, in Mead, we have one GP per three and a half thousand people. On one hand, you're asking hospitals to do something about people waiting on hospital trolleys, while at the same time hospitals are are told that they will have to lay off a third of agency staff. Embargo on admin staff 
who do very valuable work which hospitals could not operate without, whether they are accessing medical records, signing in patients or tracking patients. This is leaving staff in a very precarious position where in some cases morale is low because of the workload they are already on, under. And all of this together can only lead to a winter of discontent and people waiting longer for care. The underfunding also poses direct threat to our home help services across the country. Already in Mead, we have hundreds of people waiting on home help services where people are approved for home help, but there is nobody to do it. These services are lifeline for many vulnerable people, providing vital assistance and support in their own homes. The embargo on recruitment will mean that there are fewer healthcare assistance available to provide in home care, leaving many patients without the help they desperately need. In Mead, there is already a lack of home care and support for people with neurodisabilities to enable them to live in their own communities. This lack of neurodisability services is appalling. This is because CHOs aren't adequately funded, leading to people with disabilities being left behind. It's time for this government to prioritise health. Now that's Mead West TD, Johnny Girk. Uh, I'm sure some listeners in County Mead will uh, identify with the concerns he's been raising in the Dáil. Our phone number 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp if you want to send us a comment on 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, it, it looked like a, a warning, but it was very frightening, I have to say, to see an organised gang at work in Dundalk. There's a, a video going around, you may have seen it, it's a video at the back of DKIT of a gang beating up a young man, but with military precision. They were in, they were out, they made sure that they blocked anyone from seeing what was happening. Uh, But I suppose, like a lot of things in the world, there was somebody out of their sight with a phone who captured it all. Rory O'Murku, Sinn Féin TD in Laud and East Mead is on the line. Good morning to you, Rory O'Murku, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, How would you explain what you saw in that video? here, similar to yourself, I've seen a video which I find absolutely un- un- unacceptable. Um, it's the fact that you had what looks, well, we're going to say a gang, it's a number of people, I'm going to assume they're, they're young men and they're all covered up, absolutely dressed in black. I, I'm not entirely, right, there's a car that's there that drives off, not entirely sure who, you know, what car belongs to who. Now, I would work on the basis, whatever about hiding from people, obviously in this day and age you can't hide there's always someone with, uh, with with a phone. This happened at the DKIT apartments um, on Monday in around half two. The guards were called. I have spoken to them. They they are investigating. Obviously, they're taking it incredibly serious. You know what I mean? In fairness to this young man that was beaten up, as you know, and obviously an absolutely frightening circumstance. I, I think the only positive we can see is the fact that uh, he he walked away um, from the situation. But none of it's all right. It's absolutely brazen. Um, and I imagine what can happen in some of these circumstances is that you have a couple of serious players and you have other people who end up in a scenario, you know, they're in too deep, you know, don't realise what they're in for. And that this could have ended up being a hell of a lot more serious. And let's be clear in this day and age, the, the other thing is people will have left, uh, you know, a, 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 a trail 
you know, in the sense of the Gardaí will be investigating. They will be looking at all CCTV footage. Anyone with information, particularly if they have dash cam or anything in around that particular area that they believe is useful, needs to provide it to them. And you will find that it won't be very long, you know what I mean, before the information is arisen at. I don't know who these people are or anything about them, uh, but what was clear to me, or what seemed clear to me, uh, was that this wasn't the first time that they had done this sort of thing. These seemed to be experienced hoods. Uh, They worked in unison. Two cars pulled up, very identical looking cars, two black cars. Three men got out of each of the cars. They were hooded, they were masked. Uh, One set of men, three men in other words, uh, walked uh, away from where this man was beaten up, obviously to stop anybody from getting close to it. Their car was also uh, uh, obstructing vision of what was going on, whilst the three men in the front car went over to this young man uh, and punched the head off him. Yeah, and then the in, in and the other guys seemed to be, I don't know what they were searching for in another car and... You know, it looked at one stage like one fella was like just like rapping, you know, you know, on on the window of it. So, so in that sense, I'm not entirely sure. But let's let's be clear: there's a considerable amount of people who are involved in this. People are going to know who who these are. Like I say, g- g- given given the circumstance we find ourselves with, so much CCTV footage and whatever, they they will be found out. This is utter brazenness. And it's, it's utterly unacceptable. And as I say, I, I, when it was brought to my attention, like the first, my first port of call was, was the Gardaí. Um, and obviously when we see circumstances like this, nearly the first place we jump is in relation to is this drug debt intimidation. And at this point in time, they have no evidence to suggest that it's that. But as I say, it's ongoing investigation and I, I don't expect them exactly to be offering me up uh, operational details in relation to that. But I think it's incredibly serious. It's utterly unacceptable. It's not something that can go on. And I would say to anyone who's involved in this that they really need to take a hard, long look at themselves Mm. because in this day and age, you're not going to get the run that you think of. I know we can give out about, you know, criminal acts and the fact, you know, at times people say, you know, people can act with impunity and whatever. But what I would always say is everybody gets a run, then they run out of road. And sometimes what you get are kids that may not necessarily be known to the Gardaí or whatever, who get away with a number of things, let's say even when they're 17, 18, they may be from communities that people aren't, you know, might know their names and whatever. You know, many of them, as I say, have just fallen in with bad crowds. But what will happen is they will eventually run out of that road when they're 18, 19, 20, and they will be facing very, very serious criminal charges as as they should be, you know what I mean? Do you think they were younger so, than that? Uh, okay, I'm, I, I'm terrible at guessing someone's age mm. when I can see it them. It was very hard and, to uh, see where they were masked up exactly. and all of that. You said, they were, you, you said they were brazen, they were fearless. Uh, would you agree that this looked like a, a warning because these fellas uh, seemed to have no fear whatsoever uh, and it seemed, uh, uh, to me at least, that uh, they would have been well capable of going a, a lot further if that had been their intention? Well, look, 
in, in fairness, we all know the dangers of violence. We've, we've heard about the unlucky or lucky punch. A single punch has, in many cases, killed people. You know what I mean? So there's never an acceptable level of violence in relation to anything like this. But, but as I say, we've, we've also witnessed situations where people have been stabbed. We've seen situations where people have been beaten mm. to the ground and then stood on and beaten with, you know what I mean, with implements. It wasn't that level of violence, so you could make an assumption in, in relation to that it was some sort of warning. Now, what it was a warning in relation to, we can only guess. Now, I'm aware of many circumstances where people fall in with the wrong groups, that, and I'm not saying this is one of these cases, and they hold something for somebody, and, and then there ends up being a falling out, and somebody accuses the person of, you know, doing them over, and then all of a sudden a huge amount of violence is directed at people. And sometimes the initial violence is, as you say, it's threatening. It's more about what's coming next and the fact that, that, that we can do this. Mm. But like I say, anyone with information needs to provide it. The other thing I was glad when I spoke to the guards is that the complaint was made because oftentimes, and I would ask people, that, you know, it doesn't always serve a purpose to share this the, these sort of videos on, on social media. You know, obviously it needs to be provided to the Garda Shia Khan and whoever else who will, who will use it from an investigative uh, point of view. But my biggest fear always is that somebody is videoing this rather than making the call that needs to be made, you know, so that the Garda and whoever else need to be informed as soon as possible. This could have been a hell of a lot worse. We need to make sure anyone with information provides it utterly unacceptable and I also accept we now live in the world where there will always be someone with a camera maybe we see more of these things that were, were always happening mm. and, and again when I say brazen it's the fact that like this didn't happen you know what I mean mm. away from anywhere this is literally not very far from my own house it's, it's, it's around the corner from DKIT it's, it's at the apartments mm. Um, and yeah, as I said, the level of brazenness, uh, you, you know, is, yeah. is, is absolutely ridiculous. And, and that's people working on the basis. Now, as I say, th- these people may think that they're, um, that they're Teflon and that it can't be touched. But the fact is, when you have videos like this floating and other things, it's going to bring a serious level of pressure on them, which it should rightly. And we need to make sure that anybody with the information provides it and that the Gardaí follow through, because this is utterly unacceptable. It was the organised professional manner of it. As I said earlier on, it looked like something from The Sopranos. Thank you indeed for joining us, though. Rory O'Murakush in Fane TD for Loud and East Mead. Now to uh, a scam. The Central Bank of Ireland is warning you to be aware if you're offered a cash loan. Let's speak to Colin Kincaid, Director for Consumer Protection with the Central Bank. Good morning, Colm, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us uh, about your concerns. This is to do with a number of cases uh, that you've come across already where people have been offered advance fees. Yes, and thank you, Michael, and good morning to your listeners, and thanks for the opportunity to bring this to people's attention. We're all aware that frauds and scams are on the increase, and particularly online. Um, The warning we're issuing today is because we're seeing uh, what I would describe as an especially ruthless scam uh, that targets people looking looking online for loans. In particular, people who may be under financial pressure and cannot get a loan elsewhere, and so there is that degree of urgency for them, which obviously the fraudsters are prey on. It is, as you say, a scam called an advanced fee fraud. And what happens is this. Um, the fraudster will offer a loan online, um, often at a high cost, but, but, but with a 
uh, a degree of perhaps urgency around it or saying that they can do it really quickly or they can do it without a credit check or whatever, but on condition that the customer pay a fee up front or you may be asked to pay the first instalment of the loan or as you go through the application process, you may be asked to pay fees along the way or a fee to draw down the money. The, the customer, under pressure to get the loan, pays the fee. The fraudster, of course, simply pockets the money and disappeared, appears, and there is no int- they never had any intention of giving a loan. Mm. Now, not only does the person still have the financial pressures they were under, the, the urgent household expense, the broken down car or whatever, but now they are even further out of pocket. And we've seen people, you know, pay sums of money in excess of a thousand euros and these sorts of fees. Right. Um, and get caught out. That's a so lot of money. we're issuing mm-hmm. a public warning about this. And mm-hmm. uh, Mike, I guess there's two pieces of advice for people. The first is only deal with a commercial lender that is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. And if you go on the Central Bank of Ireland's website, we'll read more information about this particular fraud. You can also see the firms that are regulated by us and make sure you're dealing with one of those because that gives you particular protections. And secondly, no firm that is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland will charge a consumer a fee, an upfront fee, uh, as a precondition for providing a loan of this nature. So if you are being offered a loan, online or otherwise, with this advanced fee feature or fees along the way that you're asked to pay before you get out the loan, walk away from it. It's mm. a fraud. And that's the basic message we want to get out to people today. And other warning signs, uh, if you feel under pressure to make a, a quick decision or if you have bad credit and you're being offered a, a loan, uh, perhaps you should think twice. Exactly. Uh, and as you say, as, as well as the, the, the fee fraud element to it, other, other tells are, you know, there's a degree of urgency in it. Um, maybe saying the offer is only available for a certain period of time or you can get the money straight away without a credit check, for example. No regulated lender uh, will, will, will do that. Um, uh, and uh, also, if you look at, say, hover over the address for the site, uh, it, it might be different than the actual name of the site because what some of the fraudsters are doing is they will clone the website of a regulated entity. So, unfortunately, you also just need to be vigilant to that to make sure you're really dealing with a regulated entity if the website looks a bit um, amateur or strange, or the, as I said, the, the web address is, it looks odd if the contact details are overseas, um, but particularly this element of, of sort of urgency and maybe just a, a feeling about it that this is a bit of a strange, um, strange arrangement. Mm-hmm. Watch out for that. Okay, as you say, a number of people have already fallen victim to this. Thank you very much indeed for the warning. Colm Kincaid, Director for Consumer Protection with the Central Bank of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, policing, surveillance and oversight uh, was uh, the subject discussed at a conference held by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and its equivalent body in Northern Ireland, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, CAJ. Yesterday, Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the ICCL, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Liam. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Uh, you discussed a, a number of pieces of legislation and some of uh, the concerns relating to these proposed laws. Maybe you tell us a, a little bit more about what you heard at your conference yesterday. Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, absolutely. Well, for the last number of years, uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, which is the main independent human rights organisation in this jurisdiction, and our colleagues in the North, the, C- the Committee for the Administration of Justice, had been running a series of events looking at various aspects of policing 
in the two jurisdictions. And as your listeners will be aware, the the process of Garda reform over the last 20 or 30 years has been inextricably linked with reform of policing in the north from the Patton report. And I suppose both countries have been trying to have a human rights-based policing model, and we've had some successes and some failures. So we've been looking at various issues and areas of policing to see if we can learn from each other. And yesterday's event was looking at what's a particularly difficult issue, which is um, the issue of police surveillance. Um, We looked at three particular problems around police surveillance. (laughs) One is the use of informants in both jurisdictions. The second one is the use of technology, and particularly facial recognition technology. And the third one is how do we have oversight over national security? And this is particularly challenging in Ireland because our police service is not just a police service, it's also a national security agency. So how do you make sure that there is somebody that is making sure that national security isn't being abused to justify illegal acts by police? And I suppose on all three counts, both jurisdictions have a lot of experience of where things could go wrong and also some examples of where you can put in place the right laws and structures to try to protect people in these very sensitive areas of policing. Is it a question of how do you protect people, or is it a question of is it possible to protect people? Because you heard yesterday that facial tracking uh, results in racial bias. Yeah, I mean, what we suppose what we've seen in this, the issue of facial recognition technology, uh, I and mean, we've discussed this before, Michael. I mean, the, the Irish government was planning to introduce police use of facial recognition technology earlier this year, but because of opposition from groups like ourselves, they withdrew that proposal and say they want to come back to it next year. Um, The United Kingdom has had a number of years experience now of very extensive use of facial recognition technology, and leading academics in the UK that presented at our conference yesterday uh, basically showed a very large volume of evidence now suggesting that it's impossible to introduce a system of facial recognition technology that doesn't have biases towards people of some races. The technology, mm. it, you know, it do- doesn't distinguish between people of darker skin pigments. It's because it's of the their skin colour, is it? It's, it's skin colour and gender are, are actually two factors. Um, it's partly to do with the, the sample bases on which they train the technology that they are predominantly, you know, uh, faces of particular gender and race. But it does seem that there's a deeper problem with the technology. So it's not just a question of getting the right sample base and then the technology will perform better. It seems that there are inherent limitations in the technology anyway. And skin pigment is a particular difficulty. So um, I think it it does show that there are reasons to be very cautious about Mm. proceeding with police facial recognition technology. And that will feed in, I think, to legislation that the government is going to propose next year. Uh, and I think that we do have a lot to learn from the UK in that regard. Again, okay, I was reading uh, that Dr. Baran of Trinity College said that Microsoft's recognition, recognition software has incorrectly identified 12.9% of the time when it comes to people uh, with darker skin. In fact, uh, on occasion, uh, it hasn't identified them as being human. That's right. I mean, it, it, was, it was quite shocking when you look at, like when we're talking about very large, you know, samples now. So 
this, this research and the evidence is very robust. One of the findings, one of the main facial recognition technology uh, companies, that they are 100 times less accurate with black women than they are with white men. You know, so uh, th- th- that is a real structural problem mm. in the technology. And we've seen this play out in the United States, uh, you know, where they've been using this technology for a long time, too. So, you know, uh, we uh, have, what, what do we you mean by that? that? I mean, is it that this facial recognition flawed, as you say it is, is being used as evidence? And has the result of that been that people have been convicted, uh, sent to prison even? Yes, I mean, in the United States, and we heard again from uh, Dr. Burhan and, and Dr. Murray were the two academics speaking yesterday, that yes, there have been people wrongfully convicted in the United States where this technology is in place for a number of years, and all of the people who've been wrongfully convicted have been black, you know. So uh, th- this is one of the problems with facial recognition technology. I think the other um, problem, which is actually a much deeper problem. We heard from the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, and he says the real difficulty from his perspective is what would be the long-term effect on how people behave, particularly in cities, if they know that they are constantly under surveillance and that their faces can be matched to databases. This is the idea that there'll be a chilling effect on people taking part in marches, and people taking part mm. in trade union activities. Uh, and, and that, I think, is something that we won't be able to measure for a long term. But I think it is increasingly what academics in the United States and Britain are, are becoming concerned about, that it actually is changing, you know, into mm. a surveillance state type of model. And, and I think that that is another reason to pause here. Uh, and perhaps uh, there'll be more masked men going around. It just brings to mind because we were talking about uh, a number of masked men beating up a, a fella in Dundalk a, a few minutes ago. Uh, can yeah. I ask you about uh, the UK's Legacy Act? Uh, because Baroness Nuala Olone was at your conference. This is uh, the former police ombudsman for Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was said about that? I, I think everybody on this island is opposed to the Legacy Act, uh, but the British government seems intent on proceeding. I think Barnes alone, uh, I think, as you said, you know, is probably the most significant figure in police accountability on, on these islands. Um, and she was speaking yesterday about the need to have proper laws and oversight of national security policing, because she saw what went wrong in Northern Ireland, in particular uh, during the conflict where uh, the security services in the north were using informants who were very often involved in very serious crimes, including murder. And I think that that was one of the key lessons from yesterday. But she made very direct comments about the UK Legacy Bill. And the Irish government, we're told, is considering taking Britain to the European Court of Human Rights about, about the Legacy Bill. And she made a very clear statement yesterday that she would strongly encourage the Irish government to do that. I think coming from her, that's a very significant statement. Uh, and we are told that the government will announce their decision on bringing a case to the European Court of Human Rights in, in the next number of weeks. Uh, so I, I think her intervention is timely, uh, and, and I think you rightly say that there is almost universal opposition. All the main parties in the North are opposed to the Legacy Bill, um, because the Legacy Bill won't just stop the prosecution of people for crimes that happened during uh, the Troubles. It will also stop inquests, historical crime investigations, um, you know, civil actions relating to collusion and other human rights issues in the North. 
it would basically be an amnesty and impunity for human rights violations, and it's completely unacceptable. So mm. I think that there is a strong body of opinion in Ireland, in the North, and in Britain, that this is wrong and needs to be stopped. Well, I think a lot of weight will be given to Nuala O'Lone's opinion. Is it that she was saying uh, it's worth making the point, or is she of the belief uh, that if the Irish government was to take a complaint against the British government, that it would be upheld? Well, she didn't express a view of what the outcome of that would be. Uh, but I, I think that the reason that the Irish government is considering it is because there is very strong legal analysis to say that what Britain is proposing would be a violation of Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. That is the right to life and the obligation on states to investigate state involvement in murder. Um, and there's two ways that that can go to the European Court of Human Rights. An individual family can bring a case that their rights are being interfered. But I think that this is of such general significance, the idea of the Irish government taking this as a national issue, uh, this is the circumstances in, in, in which that would be appropriate. Ireland has previously brought Britain to the European Court of Human Rights on the issue of torture in the North during the 1970s. And uh, that case was successful, uh, to an extent at least. Uh, so... We have a precedent here. You know, Ireland has shown itself willing to raise very important human rights issues um, against the United Kingdom. And, and I think this is another such issue. OK, Liam, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's Liam Herrick, who's Executive Director of the ICCL. That's the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Let me bring you just a, a couple of comments that have come to us about the health service. Bernadette in touch, wondering what home help do for people Uh, I think Bernadette uh, the answer to that is home help uh, workers help people to live independently and at home Uh, I don't think our our next uh, texter would be too happy with the question they say oh Michael the mind boggles honestly as a home carer what we do and for what we get paid it's an insult and that's why there's a lack of home carers. The companies that employ us are getting €40 Euro an hour and the carers doing the work are on a pittance. I myself bring an awful lot to the table but with no recognition at 51 I'm thinking of leaving the job that I love because of that. Minimum wage is what we get for all the back-breaking work and emotional aspect of the job we do. Shop assistants are on more than us and yes, they work hard also but for carers, the money needs to be upped. Uh, please keep my name anonymous. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, somebody else then WhatsApping us. This is Ellen, actually. Thanks, Ellen, as always, for your message. She says the problem with the health service is that it's top heavy. There's CEOs, managers, assistant managers, supervisors, and they're all on big salaries. The people that do the actual work, the doctors and the nurses get paid a pittance. Thank you, Ellen, as I say, for your comment to the programme today or text and what's no app number 0861800658 Michael Reed on LMFM uh, If you were listening to us earlier on in the programme you'd have heard uh, the warning from the Central Bank of Ireland uh, to be careful about uh, being offered a loan online. They've seen a number of people already fall victim to this and uh, the problem is that you're offered this loan which may be too good be to be true, 
uh, but you're asked for an advance fee uh, and uh, the Central Bank of Ireland is saying that people pay over this fee and in some cases they've lost up to a thousand euro. They've issued a warning and asked you to be careful and I suppose we all know that we should be careful online at all times but are we fully aware of the dangers? Uh, Well, there's a lot of information this week because this is UNESCO's Global Media and Information Literacy Week uh, and we're joined by Martina Chapman, the National Coordinator of Media Literacy Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Martina, and thank you indeed for joining us. You're advising people to stop, think and check uh, when they're looking at links and so forth online. That's right, Michael. Thanks very much for having me on this morning. Yes, the Be Media Smart campaign is all about asking people just to take that moment and stop, think and check where their information is coming from. And, you know, it, it's getting increasingly difficult, especially online, to figure out, you know, what's accurate and reliable and, and what's not, basically. And it's really important that, you know, we as citizens and as consumers, as you mentioned in your introduction there, that we have accurate and reliable information so that we can make informed decisions. And those decisions affect all aspects of our life, politics, economics, health, schools, you know, whatever aspect of life it is. So that's what the campaign is really about. It's Mm. just saying to people, stop, think and check. And if you need help, if you want tips about how to do that, there's a ton of stuff on a website called bemediasmart.ie. Okay, very good. And there's a lot of information on that. And I imagine that at this stage, the majority of people know what they should be doing. It's a bit like bad driving habits. Uh, you know what you should be doing, but uh, you, you don't necessarily follow the rules. And I think part of the reason for that, if I'm correct in what I'm saying, is uh, that people do things in haste. They don't stop and think, as you say. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you can't blame people for that either, because uh, in particular disinformation, which is information that's deliberately designed to mislead or manipulate or to influence, that kind of information is very, very carefully constructed to, to trigger you into taking some kind of action. Or, or it, it works on, on our emotions. Mm. And you'll find that disinformation often triggers kind of really powerful emotions like anger or fear or, you know, something like that. And we all have our own personal biases. We all have our thoughts and we have our, our particular worldviews. And it's human nature to, to kind of tend to believe um, you know, information that aligns with our own worldviews. Hmm. And disinformation really plays on that. So that's why we kind of have to just stop and think about this and, and why maybe we're having such an emotional reaction to something. And, and is that enough? Hmm. You know, should we not just maybe check it? And particularly if you've any, you know, if you've any sense that something is too good to be true, as you yep. said earlier mm-hmm. on, or if something is just making you... Uh, Trigger a really emotional reaction you, then maybe don't share it. And these things come and go a bit like this uh, advance fee fraud that the central bank is warning about. We've all heard the warning today. Maybe we won't won't fall for it ourselves. But when we get to that stage, uh, quite a, a number of people have already fallen victim. We've heard of the text messages from children to parents. The children are abroad. They've supposedly lost their phone uh, and they need money and people have fallen victim to it before we all learn <laughs> don't uh, fall for that trap. The same with the uh, the, the parcel from Unpost or indeed uh, the unpaid toll as the case may be. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's, and, and this is the problem, kind of, with technology, and it's also the problem with the 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 people who are are trying to mislead or manipulate. They're they're going to be one step ahead of us. So it, it that's why it's important just to to take that that moment to pause. And you know, some of the you're right when you said we 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 kind of know what to do, but we get into habits. Uh, online and and it, it's about trying to change those behaviours and that doesn't happen overnight so, and that's one of the reasons this is the third year I think that we've we've been running the Be Media Smart campaign because it's about keep, trying to keep reminding people to stop think and check and listen we all do it mm. we all end up reading stuff or or, or or taking on information that maybe we we're more inclined to believe than we should do. Okay, and it's the next one uh, that we might fall victim to uh, if we don't stop, think and check, as you say, because they're reinventing how they approach this all of the time. And I think the reason for that, Martina, is because they're successful, they must make an awful lot of money out of this. Yeah, there is money to be made from disinformation, so not just scams, but from disinformation as well, um, because it, it, it's all about the kind of the infrastructure of the Internet and clicks mean money. So the more and the research shows that people are more likely to engage with content that triggers an emotional reaction, even if that's a negative emotion. So you're more likely to, to click on a headline that's, that gets you angry or that, that makes you fearful. And when you click on, on that link, then somebody somewhere is, is making money from that. All right. Unfortunately, uh, let's not be their next victim. Uh, as you say, stop, think and check. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, be Media Smart is uh, the campaign and people can see more online at bemediasmart.ie. That's Martina Chapman, National Coordinator of Media Literacy Ireland. That's where our programme comes to its conclusion today. Thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.